When someone says they've spotted your missing loved one, of course you're going to follow up. In a missing person's case, you have to pursue every lead. But when there are hundreds of tips, it becomes impossible to follow up every single time, especially when every new lead means renewed emotional turmoil. And not just for the family of the missing. With every knock on the door, phone call, and email, there's a chance you might leave an irreparable mark on someone else's life too. Carrie Needham thinks about this constantly, always worried about the impact her search is having on other people. She's carried this weight practically since the day her almost two-year-old son disappeared. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'm introducing you to a family who, three decades after their little boy's disappearance, is still holding out hope that he's alive. After he went missing on the island of Kos, Greece in 1991, he was reportedly seen more than 300 times around the globe. And following those leads has proven difficult, financially, emotionally, and in ways the family never could have predicted. His name is Ben Needham. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When Carrie Needham gives birth to her son Ben in 1989, it's not the most ideal situation. She got pregnant at 17 by her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Simon. He's been distant throughout the pregnancy, but by the time Ben's born, Simon seems eager to be a father. And Carrie's committed to making this work for Ben. The teenage parents rent a small apartment near Sheffield, England, and try to build a life together. But adulting is a lot harder than they expected. Simon has a job, but he's not making enough money to cover their living expenses. And it doesn't help that he's barely around. In fact, Simon sometimes leaves for days at a time, without so much as a note to say where he's going. It's not easy for either of them. In a lot of ways, they're just two kids trying to raise another kid but they've got a lot of help. Simon's family tries their best to stay involved in Ben's life, and Carrie's parents, Christine and Eddie, are very hands-on as well. But in 1991, Christine and Eddie fall in love with the island of Kos in Greece and decide to move there, which means that Carrie would be left on her own to raise Ben. Understanding it truly does take a village, she decides to follow her parents, leaving Simon behind to get his life together. Carrie books a one-way ticket, unsure whether she'll ever see him again. But once she lands in Greece, Carrie knows that this was the best decision for her and Ben. The whole family, including Carrie's parents and her two brothers, are squished into a mobile home. But as far as Carrie's concerned, the area known as Paradisi truly lives up to its name. And that's all that really matters. 
the trailer looks out over a picturesque view. Casa's crystal blue waters and sparkling white architecture are something Carrie's only seen on postcards. And though their sleeping quarters are tight, it doesn't matter much to Carrie. They spend most nights under the stars anyways. Her father, Eddie, and 16-year-old brother, Stephen, begin working construction on a nearby farmhouse. Carrie gets a waitressing job at a local hotel in town and rents her own apartment. And Ben, well, he's happy as a clam. After only two months, he's loving the Greek lifestyle, which means staying up as late as the rest of the family and sometimes dancing to Elvis CDs with his uncle, Danny, who at only 11 is more like a brother than an uncle. Couple that with the warm weather and constant sunshine, Koss is any little boy's dream. In late July, Ben's dad, Simon, even comes to visit, proving that he still wants to be a part of his son's life. He heads home on July 22, 1991. Two days later, on July 24th, Carrie drops Ben off at her parents' trailer before her shift at the hotel. That afternoon, Christine considers taking Ben into town for a stroll, but at the last minute decides to visit Stephen and Eddie at the construction site. The farmhouse Stephen and Eddie are working on is a single-story complex. It's an active construction site without walls or doors, which makes it fun for Ben to run around. To some, this might sound alarming, but Eddie and his colleagues are familiar with the plot and any dangerous areas. So I'm sure if they believed it to be unsafe in any way, they wouldn't have let Ben roam free. Plus, there's a group of adults keeping a close eye on him. In fact, all eyes are on Ben's one-man show when they break for lunch. While the adults are eating, Ben discovers a water barrel and begins pouring buckets of ice-cold water over his bright blonde head. Eventually, Christine removes Ben's soaking wet shorts and hangs them on a tree to dry, while he's left to continue his adventures in just a t-shirt, diaper, and sandals. After they finished eating, Stephen's dismissed from work for the day. He goes behind the farmhouse to fetch his motorbike, while Ben follows, begging for a ride. He's gotten lucky in the past, but this time Stephen says no, Ben's gotta stay. He revs his engine and takes off down the hill and out of sight. After the hum of his engine fades into the distance, Christine notices that Ben's gone awfully quiet. Eddie jokes he must be up to no good, so Christine goes to find him. She wanders through the open farmhouse, expecting to see Ben getting into trouble on the other side. Only he's not there. Certain he must have wandered off, she scans the fields below, able to see for miles in almost any direction, but there's no sign of her grandson. She goes back to the group thinking maybe they've caught him, but when they all reply no, Christine's heart starts racing and panic sets in. Eddie and his coworker begin searching the property as Christine runs down the main road full of adrenaline. Her legs are shaking so much they can barely carry her. She goes until she reaches a sharp turn in the street. Christine's confident the toddler couldn't have made it this far, especially in such a short period of time. So she runs back toward the house. Upon returning to the site, Eddie and his coworker calm Christine with a rationalization. Stephen must have taken Ben with him into town. He probably just caved to Ben's pleas and put him on the bike. It's frustrating that Stephen didn't tell them, but it's also a relief, one they're fully convinced of, and it puts the family's mind at ease for the next few hours. So Eddie finishes out the workday while Christine heads home to prepare dinner. On his way back, Eddie pops over to Carrie's apartment to see if Stephen and Ben are there. 
Unlike the trailer, Carrie's apartment has a hot shower, so it's a safe bet that Stephen's washing off the day's grime. When Eddie walks in and hears the water running, he's relieved. But when Stephen emerges and Eddie asks, where's Ben? Everything comes crashing down. Stephen has no idea. When he left, Ben was still playing at the site. By now, it's 6 p.m. Ben's been missing for three and a half hours. Eddie rushes back to the farmhouse while Stephen and Christine go to the police station in Koss. The family decides not to tell Carrie until they absolutely have to. This might seem like a bad call, considering they're already involving the police, but they truly believe they'll find Ben tonight and can recount the story to her after it's all over. In a way, I get it. They're just trying to protect their daughter. Still, it's a decision that some have come to question in the years since. But Eddie has a theory. The brush around the farmhouse is too high and sharp for a child to wander through. So Ben must have gone farther down the lane than Christine expected. Someone likely found the boy, took him in for a meal, and plans to return him soon. Which makes sense. Everyone they've met in Koss thus far has been warm and caring. The Needhams have been welcomed into the community with open arms. If one of the locals found Ben, they'd surely treat him like one of their own for the night. But the police are nowhere near as welcoming as the other residents. Instead, officers seem cold and disinterested in Christine's story, repeatedly telling her what she already knows isn't true. The baby is with the mother. According to Carrie's memoir, Christine's concerns are met with the same urgency as, quote, a toy fallen down the back of the sofa. Eventually, she convinces the police to follow them back to the construction site, but they aren't exactly eager to find Ben. They arrive without flashlights, even though it's already getting dark. Then they cover the same ground that the family already covered tenfold. Plus, they can't stop fixating on the idea that perhaps Stephen took Ben on his motorbike, even though the family knows this isn't true. Needless to say, they don't make much progress. By 10.30 p.m., Carrie's finishing up her shift at the hotel. It's around this time that a night porter comes looking for her. He seems frantic. As she's led back into the lobby, she hears it. An uncontrollable wailing from the other side of the door. She can tell it's her mother. White as a ghost and choking on her tears, Christine can hardly get a word out. Carrie's thoughts race. Is it her father, her brother's? Carrie coaxes five earth-shattering words out of her mother. Ben's gone. I've lost him. The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. It's about 10.30 p.m. on July 24, 1991, when Carrie Needham learns that her nearly two-year-old son, Ben, has been missing for over seven hours. Carrie's first reaction is disbelief. 
It must be a misunderstanding. Nothing bad can happen to a toddler, especially in a paradise like this. Carrie's theory is the same as her father's. On a 100 degree day like today, someone certainly spotted Ben, took him in, fed him, and plans to return him to the police station in the morning. But there's also the possibility that Ben's still out there, wandering alone. The family and two police officers head back to the farmhouse to do another search, but they don't unearth any new clues, and the police begin to entertain a new theory. Maybe someone took Ben. If this is the case, it would make sense that that person would want to get off the island as soon as possible. Koss is small. It's just 100 square miles with fewer than 25,000 residents. The easiest way off Koss is by ferry. There's only two boats a day, and the next one is in a few hours at 3 a.m. So the police offer to check the docks and tell Eddie to meet them at 2.30 if he wants to help. Eddie agrees and sets off for the ferry. But when the sun starts to rise the next morning, he returns to the construction site even worse for wear and with some enraging news. The police never showed up. To the family, it feels like the police had one chance to ensure that Ben wasn't on that ferry and they blew it. And instead of taking responsibility for their mistake, police begin blaming other family members, including Ben's father, Simon. Simon left the island two days before Ben disappeared. However, the police put an unfounded thought into Carrie's head. What if Simon never left? Carrie doesn't entertain it. She and Simon had their disagreements during his trip, but she knows he wouldn't do anything like this. In fact, Christine and Ben waved to Simon from the platform as the ferry pulled out of port on Monday. Ben went missing on Wednesday, but a local says differently. He claims that Simon was at the town bank on Tuesday, the day after he supposedly left. So Carrie decides to phone Simon back in England. She hasn't yet told him about Ben, which might seem strange, but in situations like this, people can truly fall into shock. Carrie also admits at this point, she's in a state of denial, fearing if she says the words out loud, it will make Ben's disappearance real, but she can't keep the secret forever. She has to ask. Because if Simon does have Ben, that would be the best possible scenario, being with his father, comfortable at home. Except when he hears the news, Simon is a wreck. Of course he doesn't have Ben. The local was mistaken. He was at the bank Monday before the ferry left. He even has receipts. Carrie realizes she should have trusted her gut and not allowed the cost police to put disparaging theories in her head. In her mind, every second she wastes on these lies is a step backwards in the search for her son. And it doesn't end with Simon. Over the next few days, the cost police collect character witness statements from everyone who knows the family. While most of these interviews lead to more unfounded theories, one of them gives police their first clue. Dino Barkas was working the tractor at the site when Ben disappeared. He claims he saw a suspicious white car parked on the street nearby. There were two men in front and a woman in the back, and Dino is adamant they took the baby. Dino can't recall the make, model, or plates of the car, but it's their first lead confirming that Ben may have been kidnapped. And while the police don't pitch this as a theory, all the locals are whispering it was likely someone from the local Roma community. This rumor isn't a surprising development. Historically, Romas in Europe have been marginalized and discriminated against. 
In most countries, they're treated as second-class citizens. And in 2014, 96% of Romas living in Greece were below the poverty line. Because of this, Romas often live on the fringes of society, in camps outside the cities working any low-wage jobs that become available. One of the grossest stereotypes of Romas is that they frequently participate in kidnapping and child trafficking rings, sometimes selling children for illegal adoption, especially male blue-eyed infants like Ben Needham. Now, look, I don't blame the Needhams for exploring every possibility. If someone tells you your missing child has been spotted somewhere, you can't ignore it. But I also can't ignore that a dangerous stereotype may be what's causing these leads to appear in the first place. The reason so many people think they spot Ben around these Roma camps is because people can't shake this dangerous, often false idea that they're involved in criminal enterprises. And while the police's eagerness to solve this case has been questionable, I do have to give them credit for resisting these stereotypes. When the family brings up the idea that a Roma may have taken Ben, the chief of police defends the Roma communities, claiming, quote, they may steal livestock, but they don't steal babies. Still, it's the only lead on the case, even if it is just a rumor, so it makes sense that the Needhams want police to look into this. But nothing comes of it. Six excruciating weeks pass without any changes. The Needhams are frustrated, dejected, and worn down. So, Eddie decides, it's time for the family to go home. Months ago, leaving Koss would have been hard, but this little slice of paradise with all its memories of Ben has become nothing more than a living hell. The search for Ben doesn't end when they're back in the UK. In fact, it's here that it really begins. Shortly after their return, the South Yorkshire police assign a detective named Bert Norburn to the case. His assistance is far and away better than what the Koss police offered. But Carrie's told that his help comes with a caveat. Any sightings that happen outside the UK must be sent to that jurisdiction to be handled. And it's up to the police there to decide whether to pursue the leads or not. So the South Yorkshire PD does what they can from their own turf. And soon enough, they've received over 200 eyewitness sightings of Ben, pouring in from around the globe. In August 1992, Bert approaches the family with a promising lead. Bert's team got 17 different sightings from a tavern on the island of Corfu in Greece. A blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy has been calling his caretaker's mom and dad, despite not sharing any resemblance. The most recent of these sightings came in less than 48 hours ago. Rather than waste time trying to get the Greek police involved, Bert recommends the family pursue the lead directly. So Christine and Carrie make the 2,000-mile trip to Corfu, filled with hope that they'll find Ben. After an exhausting journey, they arrive at the tavern, take a seat inside, and wait. Several of the tipsters said the little boy would make a quick appearance from a door behind the bar, but hours pass with no sightings, not even of the alleged parents. Then, after multiple sandwiches and Coca-Colas, Carrie spots them, the olive-toned couple, exactly as they're described in the reports. With her eyes locked on the bar, Carrie waits on bated breath until she sees a little boy with blonde hair emerge. But it's not her Ben. Carrie bursts out of the restaurant, knocking over chairs on the way out. She's inconsolable. The scene is pure misery. Carrie's traveled so far, believing she was going to bring Ben home. And as Carrie recounts it, she knows it's torment for the Greek family as well. Once they learn why Carrie is there, 
the parents can't stop clutching their son to their chest, terrified they might now lose him because of her. Carrie says that in her years-long search for Ben, these ugly moments happen over and over again. Carrie has to essentially, for a moment, entertain the idea that these perfectly nice strangers may be the criminals who took her son. It's emotionally devastating for everyone involved. She recounts one story early on. A tip brought Carrie all the way to Turkey. Before she knows it, she's knocking on a stranger's door with a team of police. The person who answers is so desperate to prove that the blonde child in their home isn't Ben that she pulls down the baby's diaper to prove this is a little girl. It's a nightmare, one that likely scarred that mother and her child. Every disappearance has collateral damage. We talk about the toll these cases take on the family, but rarely about those on the receiving end of false leads. Like a Canadian resident named Ben Gleave. In 2005, his neighbor suggests he might be the missing boy and calls the police. Ben says he felt as though he and his family had committed a crime and needed to clear their name, despite having done nothing wrong. But this kind of thing happens several times throughout the search. Strangers hand over DNA samples just to rule out the possibility that they themselves are the missing Ben Needham. But the results, unfortunately, are always the same. I can't imagine how traumatic it must have been for the families that got caught in the undertow of Ben's case. It gives Carrie pause when it comes to finding her own son. Throughout her memoir, she frequently questions whether it's worth the trauma to other people's lives. It's a moral dilemma no one should ever have to deal with. Hope is bittersweet, but it keeps the family pushing forward as strategically and thoughtfully as they can. In 1996, five years after Ben disappeared, Christine and Eddie are guests on a Greek talk show called Shadows in the Mist. While in front of a live studio audience, a caller dials in, speaking to the host in Greek. The audience falls silent as the Needhams learn, Ben's been living in a Roma camp in Varia, a city in central Greece. By now, it takes a lot for a tip to move the family, but this one hits differently because the caller seems to know exactly where Ben is currently. The caller is Andonese Bedzios, and he's currently in a Greek prison. Before he was incarcerated, he handed over his own son to live with a leader of Aroma Camp, a man named Christos Karimi. He says that a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy who was stolen from Kos in 1991 was also living under Karimi's care. Eddie and Christine can't ignore this, they schedule a meeting with Bedzios, who insists that he doesn't want a penny of the reward money. The reason he's speaking up is because Karimi is allegedly abusing his son and he wants the police to do something about it. After some further digging, the Needhams learn of others who validate these claims. A taxi driver who worked for Karimi says he chauffeured Ben himself. Then there's a woman who used to babysit Bedzios' son. She claims the boys spoke about another kid named Ben all the time. Then one day, the Needhams get a call from Bedzios that sends their hopes skyrocketing. There's been a compromise. Bedzios says they're going to hand Ben over. In 1996, after an interview on a Greek talk show, the Needhams receive their best lead yet. Caller Andonis Bedzios claims his son is living with Ben and a man named Christos Karimi. According to Bedzios, Karimi or one of his associates is planning to hand Ben over under one condition. There will be no charges brought against them. 
the family agrees. And within days, a British consul named Gordon Bernard is flying to Greece to follow up. Betzios gives Bernard an address and tells him to wait for another call. He arrives at the location and waits. There's no Ben, but there is another call with another location. Then another. Bernard starts to wonder if it's a scam. He's ready to give up until he receives one final call, this time with a street name and the location of a black Mercedes. Betzios tells him the back door is unlocked. On the seat is a red blanket. Underneath is your Ben. Six minutes later, Bernard is tripping out of his still running vehicle, sprinting at the abandoned black Mercedes. He throws open the door, rips away the red blanket, but there's no Ben. It's another devastating mislead that sends the family reeling. But there's reason to believe Bedzios was telling the truth. Because when he calls again, he seems just as baffled as Bernard by the situation. He says Ben should have been there. He claims they were both played. In his mind, Karimi got cold feet, sending them on a wild goose chase because he was afraid of getting caught by police. While this is another dead end in Carrie's search, it's important to her story because Carrie also believes even years after this happens, the Bedzios was being truthful, that Creamy absolutely had her son and just chickened out that day. The way she sees it, there was nothing in it for Bedzios. He insisted he didn't want the reward money or anything more than protection for his own child. Plus, there were other eyewitnesses who knew about the connections between Karimi and Ben. Yet, for some reason, the Greek police don't push the Karimi angle further, and they don't seem to make an effort to track him down or question him about Ben. For nearly a decade after this lead, Ben's case doesn't see much movement. There are plenty of leads, but not many worth pursuing. But that all changes on May 3rd, 2007, when three-year-old Madeline McCann is taken from her hotel room in Praia de Luz, Portugal. Since the beginning of this investigation, Carrie's been told repeatedly by British authorities, I'm talking the prime minister on down, that they need to respect local agencies and let them do their work. Without an invitation, they can't investigate on another country's soil. But almost immediately after Madeline goes missing, the British police put boots on the ground in Portugal. Something Carrie's been told for years is impossible. Carrie believes the reason for this is apparent. The Needhams were working class people living out of a trailer when their son went missing. They had to set up tables outside of concert venues to raise money to find their child. But the McCanns had connections a high-profile fundraiser, and Richard Branson covering their legal fees. This must have been incredibly difficult for Carrie, but she sees a silver lining. She uses the momentum from Madeline's case to put pressure on authorities to keep Ben a relevant part of the conversation. It takes years, but in 2011, her effort pays off. Two decades after her son's disappearance, British officials finally get permission to investigate in Greece. Except instead of investigating the case as a kidnapping, investigators pursue a possibility that the Needhams can barely stand to consider. That Ben didn't make it off the property in July, 1991. It's a theory that's been swirling since the beginning. One that Carrie didn't dare entertain. That there was some sort of accident around the farmhouse and Ben didn't survive. In some ways, it makes sense. 
the area was an active construction site, and it was a complete fluke that Ben was even at the farmhouse that day. It's possible that he was accidentally caught beneath dirt or rubble, someplace the family wouldn't have looked. With that in mind, the British authorities excavate the land in October 2012. Despite using forensic archaeologists and a team of search dogs, the police don't find any concrete results. Authorities even apologize to Carrie for the extra pain the excavations caused her. They say they can confidently rule out the possibility that Ben died on the property, which, if nothing else, gives the Needhams hope that Ben is still alive. But in 2015, a deathbed confession upsets that. That year, Dino Barkos dies of cancer. This is the same Dino who was working the tractor at the site in 1991, the man who reported seeing a white car with three passengers near the site. Well, shortly before his passing, Dino told this to a friend. On the day Ben disappeared, he thought he heard a yelp while operating his tractor. At first, he figured he hit an animal. But once he heard about Ben, a new fear entered his mind. For decades, Dino worried that he accidentally killed Ben that day. Is it possible the white car was just a way to cover for himself from the start? The police seemed to think so. Because after his passing in 2016, they do another excavation of the area, this time about half a mile away from the farmhouse near a tractor dumping site, and they find a small toy car, a lot like the one Ben was believed to be playing with that day. It appears to have blood on it, so it's sent out for DNA testing, but the results aren't a match for Ben. And there's no other signs of the boy. The case is still wide open, which makes Carrie wonder, was Dino confused, lying, or maybe trying to offer them some answers he knew they desperately wanted? There is one other detail from the day of Ben's disappearance that must be eating away at the family, because it's certainly been on my mind. Ben's turquoise shorts. After he soaked himself that afternoon, Christine took them off and hung them on a tree to dry. Meanwhile, Ben continued playing in just a t-shirt and diaper, yet the shorts were also never found. I can't help but wonder, did someone grab them after taking Ben? It just seems extremely coincidental that a little boy and his pair of shorts went missing at the same time when the two were separated. Maybe Ben is still out there, living a life he was never meant to lead. Reports of Ben have trickled in as recently as 2021. Almost 30 years to the day he went missing, a witness came forward, saying they spotted the toddler shortly after his disappearance in Corfu, Greece. Supposedly, the little boy was only wearing a white t-shirt and a diaper, and was between one and two years old. The rumor around town was that a local woman had decided to keep the boy for herself. Greek police have made inquiries into this woman, but as of this recording, nothing's been confirmed. According to British newspaper The Sun, the pandemic has made it difficult for Carrie to make trips to Greece to follow up. But I hope she can soon, if she wants to. I can only imagine how hard it is for Carrie to constantly ask herself, how much am I willing to risk to turn over this next stone? Because it's not just about personal risk, there's more at stake. This case is a great reminder that criminal investigations affect everyone they touch, and innocent people can become casualties. The pursuit of justice is messy, exhausting, uncomfortable. So the best we can do, the best anyone can do, 
is show up with good intentions and be willing to offer grace. And hopefully, Carrie's efforts pay off when Ben finally comes home. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Out of the many sources we used for this episode, we found Carrie Needham's book, Ben, helpful to our research. For more updates on Ben's case, the family has set up a Facebook page called Help Find Ben Needham. If you have information on Ben's disappearance, please contact the South Yorkshire Police. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Rod Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Gottlieb, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.